All right. So let's begin the Iowa City City Council work session for, uh, it's the same day, isn't it? February the 19th, 2019. The first item is to review the Johnson County Fringe Area Agreement. So how do you want to proceed, Jeff? Ann's going to come up and give you a presentation, and she had a memo in your packet. Um, as you know, the uh, county has requested that we re renegotiate uh, the fringe area agreement, and uh, we've discussed, of course, that's a good idea, considering all that's happened since the last time that we've um, underwent those conversations. The biggest thing being, of course, the county has a, adopted a new land use, uh, a, a comprehensive plan. Um, most of you have not been through the process of a fringe area agreement before, so we thought it would be a good idea to just kind of give you a fringe area 101, allow you to give us any guidance as we start those conversations with the county. Good evening, Ann. Uh, good evening, Ann Russett, Neighborhood and Development Services. So just a little bit of background, and then I'm going to provide some additional information on our current fringe area agreement. So... Johnson County and counties all across Iowa have land use authority in the unincorporated area, so all of the land outside of city limits. However, the state law does allow cities to review subdivisions within two miles of the city's boundary. This is known as the fringe area. And fringe area agreements allow cities and counties to negotiate land use authority within that two-mile boundary to coordinate planning efforts. Our current fringe area agreement was adopted in 2006, and it's a component of our comprehensive plan. It outlines the jurisdictional review authority for land within those two miles outside of our corporate limits, and it provides land use policy guidance on land development within the fringe area. So what types of land use is envisioned for those areas? This is the fringe area map from 2006. It was adopted as part of the fringe area agreement. The, the green in the center of the map is the jurisdictional boundaries of Iowa City in 2006. The areas just adjacent to the, to the city limits that I'm trying to highlight here are all of the areas within the city's urban growth boundary. Those areas further out are still within the fringe area but they're outside of the city's urban growth boundary. The current fringe area agreement outlines, um, like I said before, the review authority for various land use proposals, and it's divided up by land that's inside our growth boundary and land that's outside of our growth boundary. For commercial zone properties in fringe area B, which is in this area here, um, it's those developments are subject to the city and county site plan review requirements. For developments that are greater than two acres where no subdivision is required, inside the city growth boundaries, those um, developments are subject to review by both the city and the county in accordance with each jurisdiction's requirements. And outside of the growth boundary, no review is required by the city unless it's associated with the rezoning. For rezonings, the county has control over rezonings. However, the city is required to review and make a recommendation to the county planning commission. And for subdivisions, review and approval by both the city and the county is required. Different regulations apply depending on if it's inside the growth boundary or outside the growth boundary. 
I have a couple examples of here of some recent subdivisions as well as the rezoning that were approved. I have an example from outside of the growth boundary. This was one that was approved by the city last year in 2008. It's Glenwood Springs Part 1 and 2. Um, since it's outside the growth boundary, it's subject to rural design standards. So for any uh, roadways that are built, there's no curb and gutter. It's subject to county stormwater standards. And um, any development will be on private water wells and septic systems. Here's another map that shows the location of this subdivision. The blue areas that you see on the map here and over here are actually um, within Iowa City's corporate limits. So it's, this subdivision is very close to our corporate boundary, but it's outside of, outside of our growth boundary. Here's the part, Glenwood Springs, Springs Part 2 final plat. There's been no construction activity since this was platted. Um, these are one-acre lots, and eventually there'll be 12 single-family homes on the lots. This example is along Herbert Hoover Highway, just east of Old Town Village. It's within our growth boundary. There was a rezoning from county commercial to county residential. And like I said, the, the county has ultimate authority over rezonings in the unincorporated area. Um, however, as part of that rezoning, the city reviewed it and made two recommendations for conditions which were up, upheld by the county. Um, one was that any future division or lot split within this area must be approved by the city, and that went beyond what is currently required in our fringe area agreement. And the second condition was that the owner consented to annexation if an adjacent property owner was to propose an annexation in this area. Here is the plat that was approved by the city in 2017. Um, this was a, a subdivision mainly to identify an additional lot for a development, a single-family home for a, a family member. No, no real construction activity is occurring out here now. However, any, any um, planned roadway improvements would be subject to the city regulations. Until annexation, it would be um, subject to the county stormwater standards, and it would be on private water wells and septic systems. As, as uh, the city manager mentioned, the county has formally requested an update to the current fringe area agreement, and staff has been coordinating with county planning staff. In terms of our initial steps related to this update, staff is looking at doing a couple of things. First, we're working um, to identify any infrastructure needs or issues at the edges of the community, and we also want to conduct a build-out analysis, and we want to identify our current um, what our current land use policy and zoning regulations would allow in terms of development, and if, if it would allow enough growth to meet our um, anticipated growth within both the city corporate limits and that growth boundary. We anticipate that several policy issues and policy questions will come up as part of this fringe area agreement. These are just a few that um, we've identified. So based on that build-out analysis, does the city have the existing capacity needed for anticipated population growth? If not, where and how should the city grow? Which local jurisdictions land use regulations apply within the city's growth boundary? Um, which which uh, jurisdictions regulations should apply outside the growth boundary? And additionally, does the city want to review more land use proposals within our growth boundary? For example, site plans. 
uh, divisions and lot splits, which we currently don't review. And uh, I just wanted to kind of help highlight or illustrate some policy questions through a more specific example. Um, as, as the city manager also mentioned, the county updated its comprehensive plan in 2018. And as part of that update, they've identified areas for residential, commercial, and industrial growth. And some of these, in general, these areas are located close to cities. They're located in the fringe area. They're not located within the city's growth boundary, however. So on the map here, the label here identified as residential is a county growth area that's within the fringe area but outside of our growth boundary. And as you remember, the city did recently review a proposed rezoning in this area right here. And that rezoning was in conflict with the fringe area agreement, but it was consistent with the county's comprehensive plan. There was a conflict um, that resulted after that between the city and the county, which has now been resolved. But staff anticipates that the county is going to want something different than what is in our current fringe area agreement when there's um, an inconsistency between that fringe area agreement and the county's comprehensive plan. They will want... Um, the fringe area agreement to align with the land use policy direction that they've recently adopted with their comprehensive plan update. Um, that's all I have, so I'll turn it back to, to the mayor. Thank you, Ann. Uh, let me ask one quick question, and then and I'm sure others have things they want to say. Could you explain how a growth boundary is set? You know, I know this was done in 2006. You were not working for the city then but you know all about growth boundaries. So how, how is one set? And if someone else, or perhaps you can explain how ours was set, that'd be good. It's, it's my understanding that um, the current growth boundary was identified based on basically infrastructure constraints and where we could add a, you know, provide sewer and water relatively easily. And those areas beyond the current growth boundary would be more difficult to serve. Right. Thank you. That, that's the way I recall it as well, but I just wanted to okay. see if that was right. Okay. Uh, council members, do you have any questions for Ann and so on? I guess in regards to the growth boundary, you mentioned we may want to look at that. Is there any thoughts of new directions for a growth boundary, potentially? Not, not at this time. We need to do some more analysis. Okay. My, my thought would be our growth boundary is going to change. It's been 12 years. We've had significant population growth. Um, as, as Ann mentioned, we don't necessarily want to constrain ourselves uh, to where we can't, you know, if we can't grow, we're going to experience some of the pressures that, that you all have been working to alleviate, like housing prices, uh, rising housing prices, scarcity of land for development, that, uh, that type of thing. Uh, so we'll need to take a good hard look at what we can serve with water and sewer. We've made a number of investments to our system since 2006. So there's probably some areas um, that we can expand our growth boundary. Um, at, uh, that isn't as costly as, as others, but we need to go through that exercise. We need to kind of examine what the current capacity is within our growth boundaries, what we think that capacity needs to be, and then... The, the utility constraints is usually that, that first test is where can we grow without significant utility investment, and we'll have to kind of see where that, where that puts us. 
I'm curious, what are the key areas of conflict that you currently see between the county's new land use plan plan and our existing policies that we have? Are there some key areas of conflict that you see on the horizon um, in terms of what their their plan allows for, in terms of what our plan allows for? Well, I think in addition to the, the one I've highlighted here, um, on the map here, along American Legion Road, there's also some areas in the fringe area where the, the fringe area agreement, the, at least the policy direction in the fringe area agreement says commercial development is not anticipated, but the county has identified some small commercial nodes. So that could be another example. We haven't done a comprehensive analysis of those potential inconsistencies, but those are a couple that come to mind. Um, I might have a map here, this area here. Can you tell us where that is? Because I can't read them. It's on the west side, west of 218, off of uh, Highway 1. And is that the road I to can't Sharon actually going read south? That. Or? So all of the, the, again, like I mentioned before, this is within, this green area is within our growth boundary, and this area here is outside the growth boundary. So the county identified a commercial node outside the growth boundary um, for p potential future development. All of this would need to be rezoned for, for commercial development. I'm curious about any conflicts in terms of um, the density of residential subdivisions. We had a recent subdivision rezoning, it's my understanding, where there was a conflict where it was extremely large lots. Um, I wasn't in favor of rezoning that. Do you see that as being an issue on the horizon in terms of different perspectives, in terms of what we would like to see in terms of density for residential subdivisions and what the county would like to see in terms of density for residential subdivisions? Are there any conflict areas there? Um, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because the county does regulate zoning in the unincorporated areas and those subdivisions and even the Glenwood Springs example is subject to the county's zoning regulations and, and they have those areas designated as approximately one dwelling units per acre. That's kind of their higher end for residential development. Um, I think that that's maybe another question on whether or not we think some areas should should be have higher density residential in those areas. I don't think I can answer that now. Okay. I do have a question about um, when there is a issue and we want a resolution. Uh, can you just review what the process is? I know that Susan may mention that we were, you know, we went and made an agreement with the county, but. I'm unsure why you thought we didn't need to. Um, I'm drawing a blank as to what you're referring to. Okay. <clears throat> Can you re review resolution? All right. In, in that example, it was related to the proposed rezoning. Oops, I'm going the wrong way. On American Legion Road, where staff had recommended against a rezoning because it was in conflict with the French area agreement. However, it was consistent with the comprehensive plan. 
Um, the county then reviewed it, and since it was consistent with their comprehensive plan, they wanted to move forward with the rezoning. So although the city recommended against it, the county was recommending for it, there's a provision in the fringe area agreement that says when there is a conflict, um, that should be discussed between the city and, and the county and some sort of resolution um, identified. And I think Councilmember Mims' comment may have been the county has land use authority when it comes to rezonings. Maybe they should just make the decision instead of having a, uh, <laughs> I don't recall. Okay. I just remember it came back. It seemed like we voted on a second time to agree with it. And I just didn't feel like it made sense because it still was in conflict with the fringe area agreement. So that's why I voted no on that one. Yeah. And, and I wanted to just bring yeah. out that um, Councilmember Mims did point out that the county did have the right to make their own decision. So I guess moving forward, is that the situation whenever there is a, uh, a disagreement that the county in certain in the fringe area agreement can make the decision without the city? Currently, currently the, there's a the conflict resolution provision that would require some sort of discussion between the city and the county. And I think the question is, do we want to carry that forward? Or, or are there um, certain land use proposals that we want to carry that forward on um, and others that we don't, if that makes sense? It's fairly similar to your PNZ consults. You know, at the end of the day, you have the decision, but we've made a policy that when there's a disagreement, you have a discussion and see if there's common ground that can be reached. I had a question that just the, the logic of it, I guess, and whether this would make sense continuing in, in your memo, and you mentioned that per the existing agreement, the fringe area is fixed and does not adjust as land is annexed and the city grows. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it, it would seem to me that over time, if the city is going to grow and you're going to annex in more land, that you would want that fringe area to grow as well so that we're still having some consults um, in, the, in that two-mile boundary around the city. I, I thought it did because I thought the fringe area went out to two miles beyond the current city limits. So if the limits, city limits were expanded as a result of annexation, wouldn't that automatically push the fringe area outer edge further out? It's, it's my understanding that we use this map, which is fixed which was adopted in 2006 and hasn't been updated based on annexation. So if that's something that council would like, we can definitely look at that. I think we should look at I it. I think we ought to look at it. Yeah. I think uh, council member Mims is correct because it says the city will review the extension of the fringe area as a result of annexation on a case-by-case -case basis, not automatically extended. So that is a little bit confusing. So I would think the big questions have to do with Highway 1 and Highway 6, just outside our city limits and, uh, you know, in various parts of the growth, within the growth boundary and not within the growth boundary. It seems to me that's what we would be most concerned about because that's where it's most likely, I would think, most likely that uh, subdividers and property owners would want to develop their property and take advantage of adjacency to the city. I think American Legion is another one. I think we've already seen that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. American Legion as well. And Sand Road, yes, not yeah. to overlook it. Maybe also Williams Road or whatever that's called officially, the one that goes out to Williamsburg. 
past our landfill. I think if I were to raise a concern with respect to our current growth boundary and where and how it should expand, if if we were to consider that, is is that question which I think Jeff referred to, um, and I would just expand on saying, you know, will the growth generate the kind of tax revenue necessary to support the infrastructure and all the services that would be required by that expansion? And uh, it, it does seem to me that the further you go out, the more expensive it gets to provide those services and the infrastructure, which you know may vary from area to area around the uh, the city. But I think it, it is a concern to me. I mean, I keep I was looking up again today our in our current budget the three hundred and forty million dollar unfunded. CIP projects, and I didn't look through the list, but it, it sort of speaks to how, well, we're not covering hundreds of millions of dollars worth of projects within our current city limits. Um, how does expanding help with that in the long term? This is really a long-term issue. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all gravy, right, until all that infrastructure begins to require replacement. You still have the services to provide, but um, that's, that's a major concern to me. It does seem that it, it potentially could be a future council's problem, <laughs> uh, not one that you know we would... Well, what, what we're encountering are the decisions made from 30 to 50 years ago, but so it's always projected out. But um, I, I do have real concerns about that. And you're, you're just identifying a topic for conversation topic, that you know, may attention. You know, I, I do feel, if, if this is the appropriate word to put toward it, that, you know, uh, the city should be preparing pro formas for future growth. You know, what, what do we anticipate? Can we sustain the growth through our tax revenues? And I assume that would apply within our city limits as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's not limited to the, the fringe area. So I think that gets back to the topic that I was talking about earlier is this question of density of residential subdivisions. And I think that the county and the city should have a real conversation in terms of what the expectations are in terms of density for residential growth in the outer areas. Um, you know, and we've seen in our own rezoning inside the city limits where we had much higher density um, in terms of the single family, the multifamily. Obviously, in the country, it is going to be lower density, uh, but I think the question is, is how low that density is going to go. And at least some of the projects I've seen have been lower than I'm comfortable with. So I think that should be a key topic of discussion between the county and the, and the city in terms of what is the game plan. Because my fear is if we have some of these little pods of five and seven one-acre units, we're really encouraging the, the type of auto-centric commuting that I think to the extent that we can, uh, we don't want to facilitate. And I think that would be a good topic of conversation between the city and the county in terms of um, future growth. Other comments or ideas or suggestions? 
Well, I think a question for us would be just how involved the council wants to, to be in this process. Um, certainly as staff, we're comfortable initiating conversation and, and checking in with you when we, when we think we need to, but we also we also don't want to spend months and months working on this and then be surprised if, if you're not comfortable with a certain aspect of the fringe area agreement. Um, so we could do a couple things. One thing might be to, to come back in a, in a future work session after we've done our uh, growth analysis and, and have a, a more clear picture for you on what a revised growth boundary may look like. And then we can also zero in on those areas of conflict within our growth boundary um, and, and have some more uh, kind of precise conversations about those areas where we anticipate there might be some, some issues where we could skip that and you could turn us loose and hmm. i like the first option <laughs> i mean I, th I think it potentially saves staff a lot of time that like you said could be wasted if you misread where we want to yeah. go um and i think it gives us a chance to weigh in earlier on what are you seeing as those new growth boundaries and kind of like rockney and, yeah. and john were saying about you know what are the metrics what do you What's the pro forma? How do you see that paying for itself if we do extend the city limits out there? Um, and so I think that would hopefully help keep us all on a closer track so that you don't end up potentially wasting time. Okay. I would agree. And I, and I think that if there are any major sticking points that arise, it would seem to me that, um, you know, and, the, and the, I assume that you would work very well with the county staff in terms of coming up. There are some major sticking points where you think that you know we may need council input, then we could get that information. But I think that first option sounds good to me. I would agree. Anybody else have thoughts about that? I would agree. Okay. okay. Do you need anything else from us, Ann? Thank you. Great. Thank you for your help. Okay. I guess we can move on to the next item: clarification of agenda items. I'd like to just nine. get one thing out there. I, item number eight has to correspond us. No, it's nine, isn't it? Nine. Uh, nine. Correspondence. Yes. And we received several bits of correspondence regarding Mormon Trek and the four to three lane conversion out there. Uh, a few weeks ago, Rockney, you asked that we show say, a video. We need to have our video. Yeah, so I've asked staff to uh, load up that video so that we can watch it. And so that's what we're going to take. It's about four minutes or something like that, isn't it? Five minutes yeah, at the it's, moment. it's short. So we can see this video and we see what the Iowa DOT is, uh, how it's framing all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You might need to put the mic down by the Can I have one big scoop of chocolate, please? Mm. Yeah, well, hey, yeah, Avery, what's a four-lane to three-lane conversion? <laughs> hey, who doesn't like ice cream? Bart, what do you think about the project to change this road from four lanes to three lanes? They say it's going to be safer. I guess we'll just have to wait and see about that. Let's take a quick look at what a four to three lane conversion is. Here you see a typical four lane road. When we convert to a three lane, we keep the road the same size but restripe it with one lane in each direction and a turn lane down the center. This often leaves room left over which can be used for enhancements such as parking or bike lanes. There are many benefits to this new configuration which we'll discuss a bit later. 
But first, let's talk about safety. Improved safety for all users is the main reason cities across Iowa have chosen a three-lane road. In this case, three is better than four because it results in fewer crashes and fewer injuries. This keeps traffic flowing, saving people time and money. In fact, converting a four-lane road to a three-lane road has been shown to reduce crashes by up to 47%. Let's see, groceries, pharmacy, what else? Whoa, what are you doing? With four-lane roads, drivers may stop or slow down at any time to make a turn from the left lane. These unexpected actions result in frequent rear-end crashes, sideswipes, or quick lane changes. Hey, are you okay? Another common crash type on four-lane roads is an angle crash. Due to line-of-sight issues on four-lane roads, Drivers trying to make that left-hand turn often cannot see vehicles in the outside lane because they are hidden by vehicles in the inside lane. By design, a three-lane road makes these previously invisible cars visible, helping drivers navigate their turns more safely. Moving all left turns to the center lane reduces rear-end and sideswipe crashes too. Fewer crashes also means that law enforcement will spend less of their time responding to crashes, allowing them to focus on other priorities. The main reason we went to a three-lane versus a four-lane is, is for safety. We were covering a lot of accidents on the four-lane, and by going to a three-lane, it has decreased our accidents significantly. Also, it's a safety factor for our pedestrians. It's true. Research has shown that three-lane roads are safer for pedestrians than four-lane roads. There are fewer lanes to cross, so pedestrians are exposed to traffic for a shorter time. And since there is only one lane of traffic in each direction, it's easier for pedestrians to judge how traffic is moving. Converting to a three-lane road can improve safety for all users, but how well does it work for large vehicles like farm equipment and semi-trucks? And how does it affect traffic flow? During harvest time, we see quite a bit of equipment coming through here, like planters, combines, things like that. The traffic still flows great with it. Since the width of the pavement hasn't changed, the impacts on large farm equipment and the vehicles around them are minimal. As you can see, our equipment is big and getting larger. We appreciate it when people get out of the way. We're harvesting corn right now, and we're having a pretty good year. A three-lane road also works well for semi-trucks. The center turn lane provides them with the room, if needed, to make turns onto or off of the road. Um, no issues at all uh, with me with the semi-truck, just with the two-lane with the lane in the center. A three-lane road also works well for emergency responders because drivers can move over quickly and easily. Compared to either a two-lane road or a four-lane road, uh, the three-lane uh, has a lot better response time because, I mean, we can get across there a lot quicker. On a four-lane road, emergency vehicles can sometimes face bottlenecks when drivers in the left lane try to move over but can't. This problem goes away on a three-lane road. 
the three-lane highway here in Atlantic works really good for us because the center lane is usually open for us, so we see very little slow time going through town. The flexibility of a three-lane road improves emergency response, and for drivers, traffic flows more consistently at appropriate speeds, making their drive times more predictable. To whom it may concern, I have lived in Cresco, Iowa all my life. I want to commend your changing the highway number nine from a four-lane to a three-lane. It has slowed traffic down, it keeps the trucks in line at a proper speed, reduces accidents. It was an excellent change in every detail. Highway 9 stays very busy. We've seen our businesses grow. Uh, come and check us out in Cresco. If, if you want to see it firsthand, love to have you visit. Just drive through the corridor. You'll see that uh, access to our businesses is very easy and identifiable. The road hasn't changed, just the paint changed. And so we figured out that the traveling public understood pretty quickly on how to maneuver this new corridor. And we also figured out that getting access into our downtown was actually easier and safer. For many Iowa cities, three is better than four. Check it out. Find out if a three-lane road is right for your city. Visit the following website for more information. Great, thanks. So we got all this, all sorts of emails from people uh, in our, from residents who, who are concerned about the proposed four to three-lane conversion on Mormon Trek. They raised several uh, completely relevant questions or concerns about the proposed uh, conversion. At least most of them do. So I wonder if you want to follow up on any of these particular questions, you know, to ask staff to clarify certain things, get, see if we need better information, anything like that, uh, so that we can make sure we're, we're going to make the best decision possible for the people of the city. Well, for me, I want to follow up on that 47% reduction in crashes. Um, I've reviewed the research over time, and it, this number varies uh, from I've, as low as 20% uh, up to as high as 47%. I think related to that, what the anticipated reduction in personal injury accidents are, as well as fatalities that we would anticipate um, based upon the um, 20 so other road diets, at least, that have been featured by the DOT. You, we may already have that information. I don't know if... Yeah, I'm looking at Scott back there. I, I recall we have the uh, PowerPoint from the public meeting on our website, and I know that statistic's on there. I'm thinking we were projecting a 25% reduction in accidents based on that slide. While you're yeah, talking. I think that sounds correct, about 25%. But we can, we can definitely dig and that up. And then of that percentage, what would break down in terms of a personal injury or a potential fatality? Yeah, we'd have to look into that. Okay. I can pull it up here if okay. the conversation goes on. I don't recall, pardon me, I just don't remember, did we get, like, actual accident numbers at all of those intersections on Mormon Trek? Okay. Yes. Anecdotally, um, about a couple months ago, and, of course, this is not scientific, uh, I was on Facebook, and I had posted, uh, 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 made a post about the benefits of the four to three, and one of the residents that lived along Mormon Trek said that, 
pretty frequently he could literally hear the crashes. So it, it is something that, that has been expressed as a concern um, for mm -hmm. this particular corridor. I'd rather look at the police numbers than... <laughs> well, anecdotally, but, but again, I think what makes this so compelling, though, Susan, is that the data that we're using is the 20 or so that have been featured by the DOT, peer-reviewed, and there's also a lot of peer-reviewed literature. So I, I think in terms of the community members, if they have peer-reviewed data sets that contradict in any way the anticipated personal injury accident reductions, I, I would like to hear that information. No, I agree. Um, I'm just you saying... Know, I, I mean, to me, that is just an overwhelming case. And, and I'm not aware, by the way of any contrary data suggesting that, one, that it would make it riskier if we would do the four to three. I think no one's saying that. Um, and I think the only debatable point would be the amount of the reduction in accidents that we would have. But I think we can confidently say it will be reduced with a four to three. So we do have data about accidents on Mormon track at these various intersections. So we can draw upon that yeah. data. Yeah. Again, from, from our website and the public meeting that was held, from 2011 to 2015, through the entire corridor, that's Petzl to Westside Drive, there was 126 crashes, uh, resulting in 645,000 in property damage. And 56 of those were the type of accidents talked about in that video. 30 were followed too close, so rear end, and 26 failure to yield to right of way on a left turn. What was the time frame again? 2011 to 2015. So we don't have more current information like that? Oh, I, we would. Um, this is, the public meeting was held in 16, so this was just at, at that time. But um, we could provide you updated stats from 16, 17, and 18 probably. I'm assuming that's going to be in line with what you see from the previous four years. Do we have the speed? Analysis as well. Is that in that PowerPoint? Uh, the uh, travel time or the uh, the actual speeds. I don't have the actual speeds. It's probably in Snyder's report, which is uh, also online. That's a more, I'm going to need some more time to look through that. It's a lengthy report. The other question the public raised was uh, the timing of when we did the traffic count. Is is would it be possible to do another traffic count? I mean, I live very near here, there, and it is very busy. Um, I don't, I don't know if it would make much difference in the numbers. They, can, they were concerned because the students wouldn't have been in town at that time, and it was winter. And I don't expect the traffic numbers to change that much. Um, it's only been you know, less than five years since we, we had the counts from before that we used, so I, I wouldn't anticipate much of a change there. So let me be a devil's advocate here, Scott. Several of the emails we got basically said, oh, you chose January the 12th, is that the date? When no students are around, there would be less traffic going to the university. So why would you choose that date? Why not choose some other date where the traffic volumes would probably be higher? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to have a clear answer to that question. Sure. And we can take take a look back at the, the Snyder study and, and, you know, if there's some, some areas of that that need to be reviewed, we can definitely review those. Do you have a sense of what the daily traffic numbers are on Mormon Truck? What is that exact number? I mean, it's approximate. Do you remember what we had? It's substantially under 20,000, though, correct? I believe that sounds right. It's yeah. around 14. Yep. Okay, so does around 14,000 sound right? 14,000, 15,000, I think, is kind of in that ballpark. 
and really what we look at for an ideal candidate for the four to three is under 20,000. Correct. Okay, so yep. we're substantial within those margins. That's correct. Yep. Right. And that concern was raised as far as the football traffic, which that is a pretty major intersection for uh, north-south and east-west for the football traffic. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that would be sort of above and beyond that, and I don't think it should be included in, in those numbers. Yeah, average daily traffic varies based on what part of the corridor you're on, but the 2014, we have 2010 and 2014 accounts for all of the corridor. It ranges from a low of 8,800 to a high in the corridor of 14,100. Again, 2010, 2000, I'm kind of combining 2010, 2014 numbers. That's average daily traffic. So here's another question I read in some of the emails. This four to three lane conversion will cost a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we know we have a project out there on Mormon Trek, and we did most of the physical work, I think, last summer right. and fall, and that cost X dollars. I don't know how much, that part of it. It's my understanding what we have left, basically, with regard to the four three lane conversion, is striping. Correct. Is that correct? I mean, that's correct. So the cost of the striping is minimal. That's right. So the, the cost for the four-lane to three-lane conversion is, like you said, fairly minimal. Um, we did do a lot of patching with the project. We took a, the advantage of doing a project with that corridor to, to take care of some of the maintenance um, needs for that corridor. Um, we are also replacing traffic signals, completely replacing traffic signals, and then we also added lighting um, north of Melrose. So that was tacked onto the project, like I said, just because we were doing a project in that corridor and it made sense to do do that as a part of this project. So. Yeah, so that was all about improving the quality of the pavement, pavement, uh, improving the flow of traffic, and so on. And what's left, prime, overwhelmingly, is right. just the striping. That's right, and the signals, so, and then the the protection curb ramps to make them ADA compliant. So that's another another piece of the project that um, is outside of the four to three lane conversion. Yeah. So then another question. If uh, I won't ask any more after this, I guess uh, uh, another question that I read in these emails was basically um, uh, I'm to, oh yeah um, what happens if we, two years from now let's say we do restripe this summer and two years from now conclude that it's really not working well at all for whatever reason it's just for because of the unique characteristics of Mormon Trek how difficult is it to convert a striped road to a, a you know a, a three lane striped road to a four back to a four lane striped road. I mean, it would just be a matter of restriping the roadway, and then there'd be some some signal head adjustments at the intersections, but it'd be fairly minimal cost. So, what about the question of instead of going four to three, adjusting the one of the things is the left turns and rear ending because people are stopping for left turns or that visibility issue with the left turns of adjusting the signal so that going north-south, where there is that possibility of left turns, if you stayed four lanes, northbound and southbound don't have a green light at the same time. Right. So in other words, you have a, I guess you would call a three-phase signal maybe or whatever, so that if, if you're going north, you can go north or you can turn right or you can turn left. Southbound is sitting stationary. I think that came up in one of the what would be you know how would that compare in terms and i i don't know that you can answer this i'm just putting it out there because people are asking that question it seems like that would improve the safety along that corridor 
because what a lot of people are, I think the big thing people are worried about is the travel times and then cut-throughs in neighborhoods and what that's going to be like safety-wise. And so that issue was raised. Yeah, so split-phasing signals um, in a, in a four-lane scenario like that would would significantly reduce um, capacity of the roadway. I mean, you're, okay. the, I mean it's going to increase congestion. Okay, thank you. Do you know of the Iowa communities that have done the four to three, do you know how many times they've then reverted back to four based upon an unsuccessful four to three conversion? I think I've heard of one, and I think that was in Des Moines, um, and I'm not sure the specifics behind it. Um, I don't know if there's a political piece to it or not, but I, I've only heard of one through the whole state. We have a lot of people on the east side that don't like the 4-3 to three on 1st Avenue. That's true. We're getting a lot of complaints about that, and I don't... Again, I don't know if we've done traffic counts to compare before and after, and but we continue to get a lot of complaints about that. I don't know that it's true that the council has gotten a lot of complaints about the 1st the Avenue thing. I know we've gotten some from Bob Elliott, for example. Mm-hmm. It may be that individual council members are getting a lot of complaints. I mean, I would completely understand yeah. that. Those seem to have revolved around mostly around the Southeast Junior High area and traffic coming and going from there. So I don't know if that's something that could be looked at to kind of help with that. Um, but back to Susan's original question, if I remember correctly, uh, when the construction was going on on Mormon Trek, uh, there was a north-south uh, varied uh, turn on uh, at Benton and Mormon Trek where uh, the north got to turn left and then the south got to, to, or the south got to turn left and the north got to go. So it was timed differently right. with the green light. And that seemed to work pretty well. It confused people at first, but mm-hmm. uh, now I don't believe it's that way since, since it's opened back up. But it did, you did do that at one time, yeah. just temporarily. I mean, th- from a safety perspective, that works uh, very well. But from a congestion standpoint, it seems like it was, it was more congested during those times. And we received very, a lot of comments on that. So that's part of the reason why we went back to the phasing, because we weren't the original phasing, because we weren't out there doing construction during, during this, the winter months. We did get a DOT grant, did we not? Yes. What, of the total budget cost, what was the DOT grant? DOT grant was for 500000 of the total project cost. And the total project was 1.1? I think that sounds right. One of the things I find most interesting about this is, I'll put it this way, not all four-lane roads are alike. Mm-hmm. So one of the driving, <laughs> driving forces, nice metaphor, Jim, one of the motivations uh, behind thinking about a four- to three-lane conversion is because that will make it safer for pedestrians along the street, will increase the opportunities for economic development and land development along the street's edge. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if you look at South Gilbert Street going as far south as Kirkwood, you see all sorts of opportunity to really enhance the quality of that street by doing a four- to three-lane conversion. But in the case of Mormon Trek, I don't see those kinds of, if you will, economic development opportunities along the street. So it differs from right. South Gilbert. That, that doesn't, I don't think that's persuasive in this instance because right. I think there are other good reasons to, like especially safety, for doing a conversion of Mormon Trek. But still, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are differences among four-lane streets. And some are really great candidates and others are pretty good candidates right. for four to three. Well, and I think that's why we highly recommend when we go through this process that we do a traffic study. I mean, that's 
you know, even though we, re- we received the grant from the DOT, we went through the process of, of doing a study to make sure this was a good candidate for a four-lane to three-lane conversion. And so. in terms of the reduction of travel time, what is the estimated reduction from end to end of the four to three lane area from four to four to four to three? Sure. So I'm going from memory. I believe it was less than 30 seconds. I think yeah. so. And that's, 30. A, that's a peak, peak hours. I peak mean. hours. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, I, I think this one is really a safety project in for everyone, not just drivers, but mm-hmm. pedestrians and bicyclists. It, it doesn't have the land use benefit that they often have. Mm-hmm. But. One thing I would note is I don't think that we anticipate a reduction in travel time. There likely will be an increase in travel time, but we expect it to be uh, fairly minimal. Yeah, 30 yeah. seconds. Just want to yeah. make sure. I did notice, um, I hadn't been aware looking at that map of the, um, it's not really related to this. Well, it, there, there may or may not be a, a, a relationship between the cut-through traffic to the west, right. which I hadn't noticed before in that, you know, that subdivision area that if right. you want to get from, I think it's Rorit to Melrose. Melrose, yeah. People are yeah, like Shannon know, Drive. Because it looks like you want, if you want to get onto the freeway, you got to get up to Melrose, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know what our what the conditions are on that cut-through corridor, but I could see where calming traffic through there, regardless of, you know, the issues related to um, Mormon Trek, it would be right. good to have. So that particular... Um, stretch that you're talking about, we do have uh, speed humps in that corridor. I live on the west side and didn't even realize that folks would take that as a shortcut, but thinking about it, there are like three stoplights along Mormon Trek that I suppose they're trying to avoid and, and cut through that way. It's a shorter distance, too. And, and a bit of shorter. Yes. Do we have any estimates as to how many vehicles per day use that that shortcut? I mean, the main one that our attention's been drawn to? Yeah. I don't know that we have that. I mean, it's definitely something that we can we can get. I don't think we have it readily on hand. We have to do some traffic counts, I guess is what I'm getting at. I, I don't know. Do you all think it would be helpful to have that information? I think I, so. I imagine the number I would think be it'd very be small. And after. Because yeah. I think we're going to keep getting complaints on this. Yeah, so I think we need to have the data. So on that point, I, I think it would be very valuable to, to get have value. another answer to a question. The question is, how are you going to know if this succeeds or fails? Right. So we, we, need, we need staff to recommend something like two years from now, we'll look at it and decide whether we think it succeeded or failed. And we're going to do that by looking at the following criteria. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think you need to... I think we're going into this project acknowledging we're, we're trading off safety for travel time. Even if it's 30 seconds, we are slowing traffic down through the corridor in exchange for hopefully reducing accidents to our target of 25%. Um, and, and that's what I've, when I've talked to a lot of people. I said, yes, that's, that's exactly what we're doing. Um, we can put together that criteria. I would definitely give it at least two years. If, you wanna, if, if our primary goal is accidents, you can't base that off of a couple of months with new oh. signals and everything like that. You need to give it some time to normalize, if you will. But we can we can come back to you with kind of a, uh, a post-project evaluation mm-hmm. and how we would look at that. Yeah, I would, I would say speed reduction would be the other main um, benefit because 
you know, as we know, just from our own driving experience, when you have two lanes in any one direction, you're going to jockey. There's just a natural inclination to want to get into the fast lane. And with the three lane, you won't have that option. So it, it should bring speeds more into alignment with the speed limit. These have been in the works now for about 20 years. Does that sound about right? Okay. You mean conversions four, four to, three to three around the country? Yeah. yeah. And we, when did the council first start considering this? Is it like three years ago or maybe longer? Longer than that. Yeah. Longer than that, yeah. I think it's, it's probably... Closer to five years maybe? Yeah, 13, 14. Yeah, we when, intended to do the striping last year, last summer, and couldn't yeah. do it. Yeah. We were delayed a couple of times. We had delays in land acquisition, too. It's It's been on the books for a while, and, of course, we have to go through a granting process to get those initial funds. And, um, you know, if the, if, this, if the report came out in 15, we can pretty much bet we were working on it in late 13, 14 at least. Scott, is, is that paint a standard Iowa DOT specification that you use in the roadway? Yep. It would be standard... Um, Usually use water waterborne paint for our projects. So yeah, but it's standard uh, DOT paint. Okay. Any other questions for Scott or other staff? Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Other questions about agenda items? And just to clarify, we're obviously not changing direction here, correct? I don't. I don't yeah. sense that there's no. a desire to. But did you ask for another speed data during the months that is not January or whatever? You asked for that? Uh, yeah, we asked for a bit more information, yeah. But what do you mean, like going forward or waiting for more information? I really don't get that. Are we waiting for information after that? We're going to say what we're going to do? Well... Um, tell me if you you agree with this. I, I think we intend to move ahead unless we get some data that says it's a bad idea and, and we should not move ahead. Like if the data is flawed, the data you're talking about, if it's really flawed and we get other information, then that would be a, a pretty strong signal. But otherwise, I, I think it's correct to say most of us or all of us think that we should just continue to move ahead under the assumption that the data is valid. And to me, it, what we're anticipating is hopefully a, a reduction in accidents of at least 30 and hopefully up to 60. I mean, DOT talks about a 47. So um, no, we have other topics to cover. But for me, the safety piece of it is so much more important than a 30-second delay. So I'm, I would like to stay the course. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm concerned about the public perception of this, um, and that's where I think it's important that we have pretty good hard and fast data before and then two to three years afterwards, um, whether it's on traffic counts, accidents, average speeds, whatever is reasonable and attainable uh, given staff time, et cetera. But I think, I think we need hard and fast data because I do think this is – is and is going to continue to be controversial. I think Maz was potentially asking for the traffic count specifically, um, if they were going to be included in the new data that we get. And I'm not sure that that's been answered. 
Mm-hmm. You, I, I'm, you want us to maybe provide you some comments on the Snyder study since it's so, someone's basically questioned the validity of it? Do you want us to respond formally to you? Yeah, with what, that the, the, you know, the question was did the fact that you used January the 12th, 2016 traffic data um, by itself reduce the, 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 the observed traffic volumes because of the timing of it all? Yeah. So we need to reflect on that, be conscious of whether staff believes twenty that that date provides good, reasonable data. Sure. If it doesn't, we need to know that and get some new data. Sure. Does that sound right? Yeah. Uh, Iowa DOT has some traffic data as well. But, yes, I, I, I would be shocked if it didn't uh, support doing this. But um, I guess confirmation would be helpful. I think we heard that it was about 14,000, 15,000 count. Maximum, yeah. Right. And it's 20,000 that, you know, you get the four to three benefit. Um, so, I, I, you know, I would like to see, you know, that traffic count. To make sure that it is under the twenty, um, twenty thousand that that we that really makes this uh, a good project. Bruce, I'm not sure what, where you, how you're using those numbers. I mean, there's average daily traffic, there's peak sure. volume, peak hour volume, and I'm using them based on what Rockney said about the twenty thousand. Yeah. So let me, let me clarify that the the Snyder study was looking at peak traffic flows, so they're they were looking at. Uh, flows between 7 and 9 a.m., uh, 11 to 1 p.m., and 4 to 6 p.m. in peak times. When you have the most traffic, how are things functioning? The average daily traffic counts are separate. That wasn't something that Snyder does. That's something that we do routinely every couple years on our roads. We, we count the traffic, and the DOT does, and you can pull up a map of average daily traffic across the city. So those numbers of... Um, 14,000 or 8,000, 10,000, depending on where you're at. Those are DOT numbers that are separate from this traffic analysis. Is that where they're just putting counters in the road? Correct. Okay, okay can we move on to mm -hmm. next, whatever the next item is? Does anybody else have questions about <clears throat> agenda items? Or? Well, I just wanted to comment on um, another piece of correspondence, Greg Schill, uh, 9I, on conditions along, I think it was really along primarily on Burlington, but I guess in the general downtown area. Um, and they, you know, they had to do with snow removal, mm -hmm. uh, the construction and the impacts of construction on pedestrian safety and the use of the, I think, the public right-of-way during those construction periods. Uh, coincidentally enough, before I even read this uh, letter, I, I ran across over the weekend and sent it in. I think it will be coming in our next information packet. Did you, did you get it, Kelly? Um, th this has been a tough winter. <laughs> you know, it sort of it has. Yeah. It will be in every too. way. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it has really kind of exacerbated the snow removal and impacts of the piles of snow uh, on pedestrian safety and mobility. And uh, so I, I happened across a uh, study, and it will be in the packet Thursday, but I'll just, I just wanted to give you a heads up on it. 
Um, Minneapolis is doing a study on this question. I mean, it, it is a common question in snow country. What do you do about um, how do you how do you manage your snow removal? And I, and I briefly looked through it. it. It was kind of interesting. It's uh, you know something you, for me. My my main experiences have been in Iowa City and Madison, in Ann Arbor, and I believe all three cities. It's the property owner's responsibility to remove the snow, but that's not always the case, as this study in Minneapolis highlighted. But in any event, I, I do think it's something, just another issue, you know, it, and it really does impact people, particularly people uh, who have physical disabilities. Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, I think it may be something we want to consider, you know, again, that will be in the information packet as a work top work session topic someone reached out to me from the community um, that talked about um, their neighbors that are habitual you know not removing the snow and these individuals they're um, they live around um, property owners that are renting out to students I, I think is what I understood and so their biggest issue was these are habitual individuals that are property owners that are not removing the snow and so their take was they suggested and they may be here tonight um, in our former meeting um, they suggested that city councilors look at the current um, uh, I guess code or whatever we're doing um, in in discipline as far as like fines and stuff like that for at least the habitual people that the, um, they state the city staff knows are the ones that are continuously uh, not removing the snow, making it hard for um, our city to be a walkable city and a safe city. And especially when we're talking about uh, persons with disabilities, uh, that really does limit their ability to get around the city. And I, I do know that um, even in best efforts, you can you know, get out there almost every minute and remove snow and ice, and you still have some some residue on the ground. So I do realize that. I, I think this individual was really saying for the ones that are habitual, maybe we should look at what we're doing with those individuals. Um, the other thing that they mentioned is that, um, you know, uh, in the city will go out and look at any complaint, and then there will be someone to come and remove snow. Recently, uh, they stated the city staff has been overwhelmed, which I can get with all the snow. And so they may mention that um, city staff didn't come out for almost a week. And so where there was issues with the sidewalk, the response time from the city was um, lagging. And then the contract that the city had with the snow removals, because they were so overwhelmed, um, they couldn't even go out. Um, in a timely uh, fashion. So I think just re-looking at a little bit of that um, is, is, is probably worthwhile. Jeff, I imagine the staff has received a fair number of complaints about the lousy job they're doing with regard to cleaning up the well, snow. We get on both sides, know. right? I mean, you, you get folks that want quicker action than, than you know, either we can provide or our contractor provide, and there's there's notice provisions. You know, we, we, we don't just come and find you. We give you uh, time to correct the situation. Uh, but then, yes, we have to get our contractor out there, and there's been some delays there that, mm -hmm. that um, have been resolved now. 
but then there's those folks that are equally upset that we're enforcing it, you know, after an ice storm or after, you know, when we have a polar vortex. I mean, do we really want to encourage people out there chipping away at thick ice when it's negative 30, 35 below? We, it's a balancing act, and mm-hmm. it's, it's been really tough this year. So many events back-to-back, I think, has just made it difficult for everybody, more difficult than yeah. usual. Well, and, and the conditions at the intersections have just gotten really out of control. I mean, they're always difficult, but in this case, because of the freeze-thaw, you're, you're, you're trying to scale a pile of ice at times, and that's extremely dangerous, so difficult to do. The one photo he showed, the corner, I think it's Burlington and Clinton there, that was one we'd gotten a concern about some time ago, not even regarding the snow, but because of the construction. There was no access on either side of the street, uh, east or west, to cross that intersection. So it continues to be a problem, and even more so than with, with the snow. And I don't know what we can do about that when there's construction. We need to be a little more cautious about that. Well, the intersection is, you, you have to take the long way around sometimes. Um, but that sidewalk between the Hilton Garden Inn and Burlington is completely closed for construction. And that's, that's the issue that we get instead of going, you know, it's, a, it's a, a major inconvenience for someone that maybe is in the Hilton Garden Inn to go back to court over across to Voxman, uh, you know, and back down to Burlington and then potentially has to cross two legs of that intersection. A lot of people will just choose to walk, you know, walk in the street or... Um, it's tough. It's construction combined with snow is pretty treacherous. Yeah. Okay. Any other comments on that? How about some any other topics? I just want to comment on nine G. The letter about the bench downtown again. Uh, I guess somebody suggests that there is just. There is low cost. I don't know that. But on the letter saying that, consider removing the center arm rest. They are screws connecting the wood border. Take them off then so the metal divided off. I, I think if that's something we can consider, will be great. So we can lower the cost. Sorry. Hmm? I'm but, sorry. I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, because, you know, I guess we are planning to change some of them. Uh, as the number that we agree to change them, if there is a way instead of changing them and take them off, if we can do that from the amount. I'm not asking to increase the amount. I'm just saying, like, to reduce the cost. You get into some, you're going to void warranties on the product when you're, I mean, essentially what the writer's suggesting is that you take off one of the wood panels and saw off the the uh, center arm, put the wood slat back on, and... Yeah, that could work. I'd be very hesitant in an area as highly trafficked as the Ped Mall to be making modifications like that on the benches mm-hmm. that are going to avoid any type mm-hmm. of product warranty that we have. I think we're better off spending a couple thousand dollars on replacement. And oh, it is warranty. I wanted to talk uh, just briefly mention 9J. Um, and this is a letter from uh, resident Rod Sullivan. And I, I appreciate... Um, him sending the letter just to say to us counselors, don't be afraid of a small tax increase. Um, and also pointing out, um, you know, doubling down and invest in those areas that are uh, important to um, 
us as being, you know, the great city of Iowa City, things that matter to us. Um, and so I just wanted to make, make mention of that letter. Um, I did appreciate uh, someone saying it's okay to raise taxes. So. Oh, I agree. 9C, the, uh, the dumpsters. Had somebody from staff followed up with Republic or anyone on, on that? Yeah, there was a period of time when they couldn't get their trucks in there, and that's the aftermath of that. But we worked with them to get get access again, and it's been cleaned up. It certainly didn't look very good. Everywhere you turn, there's an aftermath. <laughs> Thank you. Any other questions about agenda items? No, thanks. Okay, can we move on to the information packets? February the 7th? 14 or 7th. I had a question on, um, I believe it was at, at the center where rooms um, are available to the public for free if they're not reserved. Is it's, that? Yes. They just need to uh, call the center to. Like the day of? Or, I mean, how does. They could call up to the day of. So uh, it just depends on what's unscheduled in, in the rooms there, but they're welcome to to use the space. We just want to know um, what the time frame is that they're planning to use it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people pr practice things like musical instruments and or use it to as a as a meeting space potentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so you can't reserve them, but you can the day of make a reserve. But how, how far in advance of wanting to use the room could you reserve it? Um, I think that they, I mean, they prefer that people call and reserve something just so that they don't end up programming something in the mm -hmm. space at that time. Um, they can, like I said, usually accommodate up to that, up to that day or up to that room usage, you know, mm -hmm. just knowing who's in the space. Um, and they can, you could reserve, typically we like to keep it aligned with, um, programming schedules, so um, for larger events that people would be um, following a specific contract or, or rental agreement for, you know, a bigger event or a large meeting or performance, something like that, um, we could do that up to a year ahead of time, but um, typically with kind of the upcoming meetings or something like that, we would just want to make sure that it's, you know, within a couple of months so that we know ahead of time. For like the library where meeting room A, I didn't see it like it seats 200 people. I didn't see uh, like can they have food? Can they um, are any of these places where they can bring in drinks and you know can they have outside food or or they make the food themselves? I, I just had questions about that. Sure. So the library meeting spaces they have um, all the the directives in their you know, rental agreements, but typically people can bring in food. Um, there is a charge for anybody who leaves the space unclean, so just a maintenance um, a maintenance fee that would be incurred, but anybody who brings in food into that space would, would be permitted to do so as long as it's scheduled, okay. um, you know, and, and reserved properly. Um, for other 
meeting spaces, I, it would be similar. There are a couple of rooms in the senior center that I think are listed, um, just like the exercise rooms with the, the wood flooring typically aren't utilized as places people have food and drink, but most of the other meeting spaces in the assembly hall are all accessible for food. Ashley, with regard to the, to the assembly room mm -hmm. at the senior center, yes, I'm trying to make sure if I'm reading this table correctly. Yeah. So, is it not available for use during weekdays at night? It is available. Um, the The difference in charges, I had to clarify this. Um, there is a any anybody can utilize those rooms the the rates that are listed for the assembly room on weekdays and weekends the the evenings um those are for like business entities so nonprofits and and residents can typically use the rooms at no charge um nonprofits would get a discount on the rates as well so do we run after 4:30 oh after 4:30 yes i'm my apologies about that um yeah, they they would just have a rental agreement to use that space. Um, these are for times that we regularly staff the building, and and then anything beyond that would require an agreement for them to rent it. So one could ask, in other yes. words. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry for that long yeah. response. Okay, thanks. Incidentally, thank you for the report. I, mm -hmm. I never have seen a, a, a compilation of, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the various rooms before, so. It's very helpful. A lot. Other uh, information items on that packet? How about the February 14th packet? Well, I thought the fine free, which I think we knew was coming, if I'm not mistaken, but um, I think that's a really good idea. Uh, so I'm happy to see that. And I, I really appreciated how the, the, the memo, I thought it was very, very thorough in terms of, you know, the, the analysis that was done in terms of coming to that decision. Any other items? I appreciate you, Mayor, um, giving a recap of uh, um, the MIP that we went to. I just wanted to make mention that there will be one, um, a summer meeting um, in Columbia, and I think the mayor went through and kind of talked about some of the great opportunities that we had while away in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I would really encourage others to consider going um, to the one uh, in Columbia, and I was trying to figure out if I can find the dates, um, but maybe we can send that through email about the next opportunity. Sure. And just to be clear, when we joined the Mayor's Innovation Project uh, over a year ago, 
it was the city of Iowa City that joined so that any council member, any staff member could attend without paying registration fees. The only thing you'd have to pay, of course, is hotel room and travel, but you would not have to pay a registration fee. It's actually at the end us. of that email. It's August 1st to 3rd in Columbia, South Carolina. Thanks. And, and this one, the one we attended, Bruce, just in D.C., is a day uh, shorter than the one that's in the fall or later in the summer. I, I found it to be very valuable, and so I would encourage people to give it a try. All right. I would do Especially that. if you can sing or play an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but I will. Okay, any other IP topics for February the 14th, which is, of course, Valentine's Day? Was, no. that is? No. Okay, I'm going to move us along. How about council updates on assigned boards, commissions, and committees? We could start with Susan and move to the left. Um, work on the Access Center continues. You may have heard that um, they are combining everything into one contract uh, based on some recommendations that we received. They were going to do a lot of dirt moving as soon as they could in the spring, but recommendation was that it should be one contract. You can have run into problems. If you have one person do the dirt and somebody else does the foundation, then you have problems and everybody blames the other person. So um, things are going to get push back a little bit probably till late summer early fall before they'll before you'll see a lot going on out there but they're still hoping to stay on schedule to open fall of 2020 nothing for me Rockney? jim could you actually come back to me sure uh maz is busy bruce <laughs> yes um on the 6th of february we had the mpojc um, urbanized Area Policy Board meeting, and that was here at City Hall. Um, no significant um, updates <laughs> that I would uh, like to point out, but that meeting did take place. Um, other than that, there are no other committees that I can report on. That's true. Miles? Yes, I, I'm sorry, you know, I, we, we haven't met, you know, that's why I don't have anything to report, but I forget to bring one item on the 14th for the, our next oh. council meeting. Uh -huh. And I know that on April we have a meeting on the 16th, uh, but you know, Civic, they have their annual, you know, event that they have it every year on the 16th, and that's due to, uh, you know, the speaker. They don't have, they, that's the only time they can come. And uh, I'm just like proposing, since we have five Tuesday on that month, if we can move the meeting to the 23rd instead. Oh. So what month are you it's talking April. about? April. You're talking April. Okay. April the 16th to the 23rd. Well, what do the rest of you think? Let's see. Because I know that uh, that's meeting, I saw a lot of council and stuff on that meeting all the time you guys join the civic annual event and i saw some yeah, of you there I, I can say i personally can do that i could shift it to the 23rd i don't know about others yeah i think i can <laughs> you said yes yeah. you said yes yes yeah so unless there's some huge uh, obstacle we don't know about let's move it to the 23rd Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Mark that down on my calendar. Okay, so 
maybe we can jump back to where we sort of were. Maz, did, did you have anything about updates on boards and commissions? No, I, 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 we haven't met <laughs> yet. You know, okay. we meet every three months. It's okay. Pauline? Uh, nothing really, although um, there was just one minor thing at the MPO meeting. The federal swap program came up again, and so there was some discussion on that, and there, it'll be brought up again at the next meeting next month. We're good. I need to, I do have an update. Um, so the city of Lit Board, we have not met much this spring, in part because of this thing called weather, the polar vortex, um, a lot of snow. Um, but there is going to be the famous one-book, two-book festival this weekend. Um, and for those of you who don't know about it, it's a fabulous program with the City of Literature where they're really encouraging young writers. Um, I still have not had the opportunity to attend it for a variety of reasons, but it always gets rave reviews. Um, the kids do an incredible job. Um, it's a really good collaboration. Maz, you had talked about you know, collaborating with the school district on various things. This is a great collaboration, the City of Literature, City of Iowa City, the various uh, cooperating cities, and, and our school district. It's always a wonderful event. I won't read off all of the dates, but I would encourage the public to look at um, onebook2book.org. Um, and that will uh, give them all the various times. But there's going to be some fabulous speakers, great writers, junior high writing jam, comic book confidential, illustrating true stories. I mean, I'm getting excited just reading this stuff. So it's going to be wonderful. Uh, check that out at onebook2book.org uh, this weekend, February 22nd through February 24th. And hopefully eventually we will be able to actually meet um, weather permitting. All right. Uh, I'll make a few quick comments. This, this Convention and Visitors Bureau board meetings meeting <coughs> is convening on Thursday, this coming Thursday. Uh, it has an agenda. I haven't looked at it. The Partnership for Alcohol Safety is meeting on the 5th of March. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation with the mayor of Dayton, Ohio, a woman named Nan Whalen a couple weeks ago. Uh, she was here for reasons that are not directly relevant to our discussions right now, but it was interesting talking to a mayor. And I think this, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Mayor uh, Peter uh, Budewig, I think, is likely to be in town sometime fairly soon. Uh, also, uh, this sometime today, we all, I think, received an email concerning... Uh, uh, um, posters displaying hateful and anti hateful anti immigrant message. Uh, they were found posted on a, down on the Ped Mall or downtown. Uh, and we were uh, the email encouraged us to speak out forthrightly against that. So I thought I would say at the start of tonight's meeting, I'd make some comments about that, expressing uh, our general views uh, that uh, you know reject that kind of hateful language and so on. So I don't want to catch you by surprise about that. Uh, one last thing is uh, I saw an obituary column uh, a couple of days ago for a former mayor, who, uh, a man who was mayor in the 60s, who died about four months ago, but his obituary column appeared in the Press Citizen. So I thought I'd say a few words about him. His name is William Hubbard. I had never heard of him. I didn't know him, but he was a mayor, I guess, for at least two years in the mid-60s. So you'll learn a lot about him at the start of tonight's meeting, so I'll say because I will say a little bit about him too. 
Okay, anything else we need to discuss? Fabulous. We're done with our work session.